In this episode, we'll discuss the tradition of seances. Seances have been practiced for centuries and have involved famous magicians, politicians and spiritualists. While some believe in the ability to communicate with the dead, many consider seances to be pseudo-scientific and lacking in evidence. We will explore several examples of famous seances throughout history, including Harry Houdini's attempt to send a message from the afterlife, Jane Pierce's White House seances, and Mary Todd Lincoln's attempts to communicate with her deceased son. So sit back, relax, and join us as we delve into the world of seances. Join us on a fascinating journey into the unknown with As Yet Unexplained, a podcast series that aims to shed light on the enigmatic, the mysterious, and the unexplained. Our exploration into the paranormal and inexplicable seeks to unravel the perplexing and offer new perspectives on the world around us. We leave no stone unturned in our quest to uncover the secrets that continue to elude explanation. We express our sincerest gratitude for your ongoing support and kindly request that you share your invaluable insights with others by demonstrating your appreciation through likes, subscriptions, or by leaving a review on your preferred podcast platform. We kindly remind our listeners that the contents of this podcast may contain unsettling portrayals and conversations that could potentially provoke unease in some of our audience members. We want to assure you that we exercise great care in delivering these narratives with caution and empathy, and we advise our listeners to proceed with caution if they find any aspect of this content distressing. We humbly offer our deepest condolences to the victims of the stories recounted here. May our thoughts and sympathies provide some small measure of comfort to their loved ones as we embark on a journey to unravel the mysteries of the unknown. Spiritualism was a religion that emerged in the late 1800s in the US and gained popularity in Europe. It was based on the idea that the spirits of the dead could communicate with the living and it involved communicating with the dead through a medium or spiritualist. Some mediums claimed to be able to create physical manifestation of spirits while others communicate with spirits through rappings or other noises. The popularity of spiritualism led to the rise of practices such as seances and other spiritualist activities, which became a popular form of entertainment. However, there were many critics of spiritualism who accused practitioners of fraud and deception. Despite these criticisms, spiritualism remains a fascinating and contentious topic to this day. During the late 1800s and early 1900s, Spiritualism was a popular movement in America and Europe. Many people believed in the ability to communicate with the dead, and some of the most famous mediums of the time included the Fox Sisters, who claimed to be able to communicate with the spirits of a murdered peddler by using raps and knocks. The spiritualist movement also had a significant impact on the women's suffrage movement, 
with many suffragists involved in seances and other spiritualist practices. Although there is no scientific evidence to support the existence of spirits or the ability to communicate with the dead, some people find comfort in the idea that their deceased loved ones may still be present in some way. Mediumship and seances can provide a sense of closure or connection to those who have lost someone. However, it is important to approach these practices with a critical eye and an understanding of the lack of scientific evidence to support claims of communication with the dead. It is crucial to be mindful of the possibility of fraud and deception and to not trust claims without proper evidence to back them up. A seance is a gathering where people attempt to communicate with the dead. Mediums who claim to be able to communicate with the dead are often present. The participants sit in a circle and try to contact the spirits of the deceased through various means, such as the holding of hands or chanting. Some of the most famous seances have attempted to contact notable people, including Harry Houdini, Jane Pierce and Mary Todd Lincoln. The King In an attempt to put an end to conspiracy theories surrounding Elvis Presley's death, Portlanders organised a mass seance at Memorial Coliseum two years after his reported passing. The chilly November evening was charged with anticipation as impersonators attempted to channel the spirit of the king of rock and roll. However, celebrity psychic Amazing Nicky Dane, who had promised to contact Elvis Presley on the other side, backed off at the 11th hour due to death threats. Instead, she offered a mere experiment. The crowd waited in bated breath as the impersonators performed but no connection was felt with the deceased legend. It was a dark and stormy night and the spirit of Elvis on the minds of thousands mingling in and about the Colosseum had the good sense to stay away from the ironic business going on in his name. The Oregonian columnist Dan Horch captured the eerie atmosphere of the night as the seance offered a glimpse into the enduring fascination with the afterlife and the possibility of communicating with the dead. Elvis Presley had reasons for keeping his distance from the seance. Local music critic John Wenderborn had previously described Elvis's live performances as lacking substance and comparable to any circus clown act. The ticket prices further proved the point that it was nothing more than a spectacle. Moreover, the protests against the seance may have added to Elvis's apprehensions. A group of devout Christians rallied outside the venue, warning Elvis fans of the dangers of participating in Dane's black magic. Despite their efforts, the fans still flocked to the Colosseum, only to be met with more prayers from the group pleading for the souls of those who were using the devil to fulfill their love for a rock star. Sharon Croker, a dedicated Elvis fan, attributed the failure of the seance not to the religious objections, but to the overwhelming number of attendees. The crowd is too large, she lamented. Too many can't handle it. However, there is another plausible reason why the King of Rock and Roll did not make an appearance that fateful night in 1979. Perhaps his spirit was still very much alive, confined within the warm embrace of his mortal body. Is it possible that Elvis Presley faked his own death? But why would Presley go to such extreme lengths? Some speculate that the rock star grew tired of his wild and crazy lifestyle, and wanted to return to a more normal existence. Chris Harrington, a columnist for the Memphis Commercial Appeal, reminds us that Presley was never one to conform to the norm. Elvis is a man who changed global culture, he writes, and then put green carpeting on his ceiling. Meanwhile, on the other side of planet Earth, the Elvis Presley seance album is among one of the most disturbing and tasteless Elvis-related albums ever made. 
It was released only two years after his death and is an attempt to contact the king of rock and roll. The album contains an unedited recording of a seance with Elvis Presley that reportedly took place in a spiritualist church in North London on July the 24th, 1979. One thing that I will say is that I cannot guarantee results at all. There may be something, there may be nothing. And that's how um, I stand. The reason why you're in what we could call a circle is that there's certain power generated, psychic power you will generate, and obviously to a certain extent I shall utilise that. And um, whilst I'm trying to sort of get into some communicating link, which is a mental link, this is a mental mediumship that I am performing, hopefully, not physical mediumship. Uh, with physical mediumship, you would have the lights out. I don't require the lights out. Now, it's possible that there may be what is known as um, a very strong overshadowing or controlling influence that may come. I do not go into trance. I'm merely influenced, overshadowed. It may happen that way, or I may only be able to use clairvoyance or clairaudience, which is to see the personality who's communicating or hear the personality who's communicating. The album, The Elvis Presley Seance, was released to coincide with the second anniversary of Presley's death. According to the rather vague sleeve notes, the event actually took place in a hall in Watford. The seance was led by Carmen Rogers, a renowned medium, according to the same sleeve notes, and narrated by Stuart Coleman. The event was attended by Theresa Curry, representative of the official Elvis Presley fan club, two reporters and a photographer from the Sunday People, and a handful of others, including Rogers and Coleman's respective spouses. It's worth noting that this is not the first Elvis seance album issued. A similar record, A Seance with Elvis, The King Lives On and Talks to the World from Beyond the Grave, had appeared the previous year in the United States. Shadow Records produced a limited run of 5,000 copies of the Elvis Presley seance, many of which were relegated to bargain bins, where they were selling for a mere £10 or less. The article in the Sunday People about the Watford seance was intended to boost sales of the album, but it had no effect. It is odd that the ghost of Elvis would appear in London, a city he never visited. Unsurprisingly, Elvis does not speak on the album, but Carmen Rogers claims that she heard him loud and clear. It is exactly 10 o'clock on a Tuesday evening. There are 15 people in the room, 10 of which are reformed in a semicircle directly in front of Carmen. This is at her request, as she seems to require this to generate the full power of the mental communication that she's trying to build up at the moment. She has come here tonight from giving lectures thing I was going to say, on spiritualism. During these things, try to understand that whatever information may come, and I feel that the fellows here I get it very strongly, but remember that he's going to try and work through me, therefore you're going to get a strong element of me in it as well. In 2004, the Sydney Morning Herald compiled a list of the 20 most peculiar albums ever made, and the Elvis Presley seance was ranked at number 13. Joining it in the list were Marcel Marceau Speaks at number 6, and Ali and his gang versus Mr. Tooth Decay at number three. The reviewer noted that Elvis seances are often held on his birthday, January the 8th, or the anniversary of his death, August the 16th, and lamented that they are not all as captivating as one might hope. Carmen Rogers had previously made headlines when she published an account of the most notorious murderer in British history in the Revell magazine. In March 1976, she called him Charlie the Ripper and described him as a nondescript sort of man with a thin face and a pasty complexion, deceptively strong in the arms and hands, 
aged about 34 or 35, and who worked in the fish trade. He was unable to form normal sexual relations with women, hence he took out his frustration by killing and mutilating them instead. She was also called on to help with regular sightings of a ghostly apparition on a runway at Heathrow Airport in the previous year. She announced that the ghost was of a man called Thomas Alperton, who had died in a crash in 1948. Alperton, she claimed, did not know he was dead, but after she contacted him, he did not appear again. He seems to be trying to tell me who's got the music for the performance, because there is a new piece, or not a new piece of music, it's an old piece of music that's been modernised and is going to be used at a performance, I think, on the anniversary of his passing. Who's got the music? Somebody's got it and somebody's been scoring bits out of it. Do you know of this? That's right, but somebody's altering part of it, he says, and he doesn't like that. He didn't like his music being, his, his arrangements being altered. Somebody's altering them. Somebody's altering them. And who is it? I don't know. I, I hear a name like Lenny or something like that. He's, he seems to be wanting that the music be left as it is because, that's funny, there's been an argument about who's going to sing the song sing that piece. It's been an argument between who there are one of two people. Could that possibly be the film that has been recently made about Elvis? Yeah, well, that one, there's an argument about it. Well, there was an actor played the part and a different singer sang the song. No, I, he, and they argued about that. No, I, because he says... No, I, that was you know, and, and it's not, it's not him. Halloween Houdini Seances Harry Houdini was a famous magician and escape artist who became known for his scepticism of spiritualism and his efforts to expose fraudulent mediums. Before his death on Halloween in 1926, Houdini said that he would send word of the afterlife, if there was one, once he was gone. He and his wife Bess even devised a code word that only they knew. Though Bess held seances on the anniversary of his death for ten years, hoping to hear their secret word, nothing ever happened. Houdini's legacy lived on in the form of the annual Houdini seance, which has been held by magicians, Houdini enthusiasts and spiritualists ever since. Oh, thou disembodied spirits, those of you that have grown old in the mysterious laws of spirit land, we greet thee. We have gathered here at the appointed time. We have complied with all the requirements to enable all of you to make your presence known. Members of the spirit world have long known of the intention of this important gathering tonight. All is in readiness. Please now, the time is at hand. Make yourself known to us. Any of you, please, manifest yourself in any way possible. Please let your united strength and knowledge aid Houdini in coming through. It is the spirit of Houdini we wish to contact. Houdini, are you here? Are you here, Houdini? Please manifest yourself in any way possible. Take from this earnest gathering any strength that may be necessary for you to use. Since his death, his fans have been trying to bring him back from the dead on this day. In a bid to contact the greatest magician every Halloween, Harry Houdini's museum has been urging fans to attempt to communicate with him within the 24-hour window of October the 31st. The website requests participants to share their results and lack thereof but warns against the participation of kooks. Indicating the seriousness of the event, this tradition of the yearly Houdini seance, with its mystical and magical undertones, piques the imagination of fans and sceptics alike. 
It is a testament to the enduring fascination with Houdini and his legendary escape artistry, and the curious desire to unearth the secrets of the afterlife. The people who gather for a seance are more than just adoring fans. They are often true believers in the possibility of communicating with the dead. For them, the seance represents a chance to break free from the entrapment of death and reach out to the other side. After the loss of his mother in 1913, Houdini stopped performing for a time and began to seek out the counsel of spirit mediums. Yet after encountering fraud after fraud and easily seeing through their trickery, Houdini devoted himself to exposing their fallacies. Houdini and his wife, Bess, were committed to the idea of communicating with spirits, even though Houdini had no success in such endeavours. They created a secret code, Rosabelle, Answer, tell, pray. Answer, look, tell. Answer, answer, tell. Which spelled out believe in their private stage language. Bess hosted the first seance after Houdini's death on Halloween in 1927, which served as a genuine attempt at contact, as well as a powerful tool for continuing to promote the Houdini name after the magician's death. Over the years, the ritual was attended by celebrities and writers, but Houdini never whispered in her ear, as promised. Neither then, nor during the hour or week Bess would sit with his photo and wait. She held the seances for a decade, and her last one was on the roof of the Knickerbocker Hotel in Los Angeles. A thunder boom reportedly opened up the sky for torrential rainfall but the handcuffs meant for the ghost of Houdini to unlock, among other props for the potential spirit handling, remained fastened. Ten years is long enough to wait for any man, Bess reportedly later said. The zero hour has passed. The ten years are up. Have you reached a decision? Yes. Houdini did not come through. My last hope is gone. I do not believe that Houdini can come back to me or to anyone. After faithfully following through the 10-year Houdini compact, using every type, medium, and theory, it is now my personal and positive belief that spirit communication in any form is impossible. I do not believe that ghosts or spirits exist. The Houdini Shrine has burned for ten years. I now reverently turn out the light. It is finished. Good night, Eric. The tradition of seances has persisted through the ages with no success in contacting the spirits of the deceased. The Houdini seance is held annually in Danvers, Massachusetts, and members of the Society of American Magicians recreate a part of Houdini's funeral by breaking a wooden wand with a recitation of the line The curtain has at least been rung down. The wand is broken. The broken wand ceremony still takes place in early November. Over the years, Houdini's grave has been subjected to a considerable amount of damage, with the bust of the magician being smashed with a sledgehammer and granite benches and crypt covers being destroyed. However, the Society of American Magicians, with the help of funds from David Copperfield, has been able to restore the site to its former glory, a fitting tribute to the man who himself helped other magicians during his lifetime. This site has become a place of pilgrimage for Houdini enthusiasts, as they hope that the great magician's greatest trick is yet to come. The First Ladies During the Victorian age, the concepts of death and mourning were predominant in society. It was a time when several First Ladies of the White House became preoccupied with contact in the dead, driven by an obsession with the afterlife. 
Among them was Jane Pierce, who, from an early age, fixated on illness, disability and death. After losing her two youngest sons, she fell into a perpetual state of depression, which was compounded by the tragic and sudden death of her 11-year-old son, Benny, in a train derailment in Massachusetts. Since then, the White House has been haunted by tales of ghosts rising in spirit form. These spirits are said to be beckoned by various means, including the ringing of bells, horns, rapping, letters, prayers, dreams and beseeching hysterics of several first ladies. The stories of these ghostly apparitions have persisted over the years, passed down from generation to generation, and have become part of the law surrounding the White House. They serve as a reminder of the deep-seated cultural anxieties surrounding death and the afterlife, prevalent during the Victorian age. As the train lurched and careened off the tracks, the passengers were violently thrown from their seats as metal and wood collided with the skull of the president-elect's youngest son. In that instant, Benny's life was snatched away, leaving his mother, Jane Pierce, with a harrowing vision of her deceased child that would haunt her thoughts for many years to come. Overwhelmed with guilt, consumed by the desire to contact her beloved son and convey the depth of her love for him, she longed for forgiveness for not having expressed it fully during his lifetime. In a heart-wrenching attempt to reach out to her son, the First Lady penned an emotional-laden letter in January of 1853, imploring him to come to her so that she could further explain her perceived shortcomings as a mother. But this proved to be insufficient in assuaging her grief. So she sought the aid of the famous spiritualists of the era, the Fox Sisters, to conduct a White House seance in order to communicate with Benny. Whether it was the letter or the seance itself, Mrs. Pierce found solace in the aftermath of the ritual. Confiding in her sister, she revealed that her dead son appeared to her in two successive nights of dreams, bringing a sense of comfort to her grieving heart. The tragic loss of a young child was an experience that Jane Pierce shared with the very next presidential wife, Mary Lincoln, who had also suffered the trauma of losing a young son before becoming First Lady. Mary Lincoln. Amidst the throes of the Civil War, Mrs. Mary Lincoln endured a catastrophic loss, one that would forever alter the course of her life. Her beloved 11-year-old son, Willie, was claimed by typhoid fever, and despite the overwhelming nature of her grief, the public showed little sympathy. To grapple with her bereavement, Mary Lincoln turned to the esoteric world of spiritualism, attending seances and consulting with mediums such as Cranston Laurie, Nettie Colburn Maynard, William Shockle, and even an unnamed spiritualist from Georgetown. These calls to the dead were conducted in the Red Room of the White House, and, on at least one occasion, the President himself was present. In her desperate search for solace and connection with her departed son, Mary Lincoln turned to spiritualism. Though many may view these practices with scepticism or disdain, it was the depth of her grief that drove her to seek anything that might offer a glimmer of hope or comfort. With the help of the spiritualists, she sought to bridge the gap between the living and the dead, to communicate with her beloved son and find a sense of closure. Despite the criticisms and accusations of fraud, Mary was willing to try anything to connect with her son, to hold on to the memory of him in the face of overwhelming loss. Her experiences with spiritualism and mediumship were a reflection of the time in which she lived, and of the human desire to bridge the divide between life and death, to find meaning and connection in the face of tragedy. Laurie reportedly had the most success in connecting the First Lady with her deceased son's spirit. He formed an intimate connection with her, 
using his clairvoyance to detect adversaries who needed to be replaced. Mary Lincoln, a politically astute woman, interpreted this assertion as evidence that Treasury Secretary Salmon Chase was disloyal to the President. On the other hand, Jane Pierce claimed that her son visited her in her dreams. Mary Lincoln, however, insisted that the spirits of her deceased sons materialised in her White House bedroom. Every night, Willie appeared at the foot of her bed, sporting the same sweet and adorable smile he had always had. Occasionally, little Eddie accompanied him. After her husband's assassination, Mary Lincoln turned to spiritualism to find comfort once again. She became increasingly convinced of the ability to communicate with the dead and reportedly joined a spiritualist commune during a trip to New England. Seeking further solace, she poised for spirit photographer William Mumler, who created an image of her deceased husband's ghost with his hands protectively on her shoulders. For Mrs. Lincoln, these experiences were the only source of comfort during her years as a widow. She firmly believed in the authenticity of these spiritual encounters, writing to a friend that, A very slight veil separates us from the loved and lost. Though unseen by us, they are very near. The Flying Medium Daniel Douglas Home was one of the most famous mediums of the 19th century. He was known for his ability to levitate during seances, which he did for nearly 40 years. Born in Scotland in 1833, Home was orphaned at a young age and raised by his aunt. He showed an interest in spiritualism at an early age and claimed to have experienced paranormal phenomena throughout his childhood. Home began to gain a reputation as a medium in the 1850s and he quickly became known for his ability to levitate during seances. According to his supporters, Home was able to float up to the ceiling and remain there for several minutes at a time. He also reportedly levitated outside of buildings and was said to have floated across the entire rooms. Despite his popularity among spiritualists, Home was also the subject of scepticism and criticism from many quarters. Critics accused him of using wires or other tricks to create the illusion of levitation. Some even accused him of being a fraud and suggested that he was in league with the devil himself. Despite these criticisms, Home continued to perform seances throughout Europe and the United States. He was the favourite of many wealthy and influential people, including Queen Victoria and Napoleon III. He also counted many famous writers and intellectuals among his supporters, including Alfred Tennyson and William Crookes. In addition to his levitation abilities, Home was also known for his ability to produce physical manifestations of spirits. He claimed to have been visited by the spirits of Benjamin Franklin and Napoleon Bonaparte, among others. He also reportedly performed other paranormal feats, such as causing objects to move or disappear. Holmes' career ended in controversy in the late 1870s. He was accused of fraud by a member of the Society of Psychical Research, who claimed that Holmes had been caught using wires to create the illusion of levitation. Holmes vehemently denied the accusation, but his reputation was irreparably damaged. He died in 1886 at the age of 53. Despite the controversies surrounding his career, Daniel Douglas Home remained one of the most famous mediums in history. His ability to levitate during seances captivated audiences and sparked the imaginations of people around the world. His legacy continues to inspire fascination and debate among believers and skeptics alike. Holmes' levitations were often exhibited in well-lit rooms, unlike the usual darkened settings. His levitation feats were further distinguished by never being exposed as fraudulent. His most famous seance in 1857 involved five witnesses who reported seeing Home rise four or five feet off the ground while sitting in his chair. 
This event was recorded in Arthur Conan Doyle's book, A History of Spiritualism. Arthur Conan Doyle was a prolific writer and creator of the famous detective Sherlock Holmes. However, in addition to his literary work, Doyle was a passionate believer in spiritualism. His interest in the supernatural began in the late 1800s, when he became intrigued by the claims of mediums and spiritualists who claimed to be able to communicate with the dead. Doyle's fascination with spiritualism led him to become an advocate for the movement. He believed that the ability to communicate with the dead was real, and he often attended seances and other spiritualist gatherings in search of evidence to support his beliefs. He even claimed to have witnessed physical manifestations of spirits and other supernatural phenomena. In 1926, Doyle published A History of Spiritualism, a book that chronicled the rise and development of the spiritualist movement. The book was a comprehensive overview of the movement and it covered a wide range of topics, from the early days of spiritualism to the most recent developments in the field. It also included a detailed examination of the evidence for and against the existence of spirits and the ability to communicate with the dead. Doyle's book was well received by many spiritualists and believers in the supernatural, but it was also met with criticism from skeptics and critics who accused him of promoting pseudoscience and superstition. Despite these criticisms, a history of spiritualism remains an important work in the history of the spiritualist movement and continues to be studied and debated by scholars and enthusiasts alike. Sir William Crookes was a prominent scientist of his time, born in 1832 in London, England. He was an influential figure in the fields of chemistry and physics and was particularly well known for his work on cathode rays and spectroscopy. Crookes was a fellow of the Royal Society and served as its president from 1913 to 1915. He was also a member of the Order of Merit and was knighted in 1897. In addition to his scientific pursuits, Crookes had an interest in spiritualism. Crookes attended a seance conducted by Home in 1871, during which he observed several phenomena that he believed were evidence of the supernatural. During the seance, Crookes observed a table move without being touched, saw objects materialise out of thin air and witnessed Home levitate out of the window and then return through another one. Crookes was convinced that these phenomena were not the result of trickery or deception, and he wrote about his experiences in several articles and books. He argued that they were evidence of a new force or energy that was previously unknown to science. Crookes called this force psychic force and believed it was responsible for the phenomena he had observed. The Fox Sisters the Fox sisters were a trio of siblings from Rochester, New York, who played a significant role in the development of spiritualism. The sisters, Leah, Margareta and Catherine, were known for their use of rappings to convince their elder sister and others that they were communicating with spirits. With the older sister taking charge of their careers, the sisters enjoyed many years of success as mediums. Their younger siblings had a talent for creating the illusion that they were communicating with the other side, which they used to great effect. They managed to convince their older sister and many others that they were truly in touch with the spirit world. Their use of wrappings was just one of many techniques that they had used to deceive people, and their skills as mediums earned them a reputation that would last for many years. Despite the controversies and criticisms that would eventually surface about the sisters and their methods, they remain an important part of the history of spiritualism. In the year 1848, two young sisters, Catherine and Margareta, aged 11 and 14 respectively, resided in a house located in Hydesville, New York, with their parents, John and Margaret. The family were devout Methodists, and the area was known for its supposed haunted reputation. However, it wasn't until late March that they began to experience unexplained sounds, ranging from knocking to furniture being moved, which frightened the family. The hamlet of Hydesville, now non-existent, 
was situated in Wayne County, New York, just outside of Newark. In the year 1888, Margareta shared a tale of the origins of the enigmatic wrappings. She divulged that the young children, she and her sibling, tied an apple to a string and would manipulate the string to cause the apple to make a thumping noise on the floor. Alternatively, they would drop the apple on the floor, generating a particular sound upon each rebound. Initially, their mother had listened to the noises inquisitively, never suspecting her offspring of perpetrating a trick, owing to their youthfulness. On the night of March the 31st, Kate was awoken by a series of mysterious snaps echoing through the house. She dared to challenge the source of the noise, believing it to be a ghostly spirit, to repeat the snaps of her fingers. To her amazement, the unseen entity responded with a matching succession of snaps. Emboldened by this otherworldly communication, Kate requested that the spirit wrap out the ages of her and her siblings. To her astonishment, the entity complied. Soon, word of these eerie occurrences spread throughout the neighbourhood, and curious neighbours flocked to witness the strange phenomena. Over the following days, a code was developed whereby the spirit's raps could signify a yes or no response to questions, or even spell out letters of the alphabet. The experience left Kate and her family stunned and bewildered, grappling with the surreal possibility that they had made contact with the realm of the dead. The young girls, Margareta and Catherine, addressed the unseen entity responsible for the eerie raps as Mr. Splitfoot, a nickname for the devil. The mysterious sounds purportedly emanated from the spirit of Charles B. Rosner, a murdered peddler who had been buried in the cellar five years prior. In his writings on the Fox Sisters, Arthur Conan Doyle claimed that the neighbours subsequently excavated the cellar and discovered a few bone fragments. However, there is no record of a missing person by the name of Charles B. Rosner. The atmosphere was charged with another worldly energy as the girls seemingly communicated with the spirit world, making for a spellbinding and spine-tingling scene. In her later years, Margareta Fox made a startling confession about the events that led to the rise of spiritualism. According to her, the famous Fox sisters had played a role in this terrible injustice. While they were still young and experimenting with their newfound abilities, their neighbours had become convinced that a murder had been committed in their house. The sisters had tried to communicate with the spirits and had received a response in the form of raps. However, they had initially responded with only one rap to indicate a positive answer, rather than the three raps they later adopted as a signal for communication with the dead. The neighbours had interpreted this as a confirmation of their suspicions and had accused an innocent man, Mr Bell, of the murder. The Fox sisters' mistake had led to the wrongful persecution of an innocent man and fueled the rise of spiritualism, which would continue to captivate and divide people for decades to come. Kate and Margareta were sent away to Rochester during the height of the excitement. Kate was lodged in an abode of her sister Leah, who was now married and had the surname Fish, while Margareta was taken in by her brother David. However, the wrappings followed them there. Amy and Isaac Post, a radical Quaker couple and long-term friends of the Fox family, welcomed the girls into their Rochester home. Upon witnessing the wrappings, they were immediately convinced of their authenticity and helped to disseminate the news among their radical Quaker comrades. Thus began the association between spiritualism and radical political causes such as abolition, temperance and the equal rights for women. On a chilly November evening in 1849, the Fox sisters held their first demonstration of spiritualism at the Corinthian Hall in Rochester. This event marked the inauguration of a long history of public seances held by spiritualist mediums and leaders of the United States and other countries. The Fox sisters quickly became famous, attracting notable figures such as William Cullen Bryant, 
George Bancroft and Horace Greeley to their seances in New York City in 1850. Their abilities to communicate with the dead even attracted imitators, with hundreds of people claiming to possess similar abilities in the following years. This historical moment was a turning point for the spiritualist movement, which had a significant impact on American culture during the Victorian age. The concept of death and mourning was predominant in this society at this time, and the ability to communicate with the dead offered a sense of solace and connection to those who had lost loved ones. Seances, mediums and spiritualist practices became a popular form of entertainment during this era, with many notable figures seeking out the counsel of spirit mediums. Kate and Margareta grew to fame as mediums, hosting seances for hundreds of people. While the early seances were frivolous, offering insight into mundane matters such as the state of railway stocks or the issue of love affairs, the religious significance of communication with the deceased became increasingly apparent. Horace Greeley, a prominent publisher and politician, took the young women under his wing, enabling them to move in higher social circles. However, the absence of parental guidance proved detrimental, as both women succumbed to the temptation of wine. Theories abounded regarding the source of the rapping sounds that accompanied the Fox sisters' seances, but the one most favoured by scientists and sceptics was that the sisters were simply cracking their joints. This theory has been around since as early as 1850, when physician E.P. Longworthy conducted an investigation of the sisters and observed that the knockings always seemed to come from under their feet or when their dresses were in contact with the table. It was Longworthy's conclusion that Margareta and Kate had produced the noises themselves. Journalist John W. Hearn came to a similar conclusion, publishing articles in the New York Tribune that accused the sisters of fraud. The Reverend John M. Austin would later suggest that the raps could be made by cracking toe joints, and the Reverend D. Potts even demonstrated to an audience that the raps could be made through this method. In 1851, Mrs. Norman Culver, a relative of the Fox family, made a signed statement admitting that she had aided the Fox sisters during their seances by touching them to indicate when the rapping sounds should be made. She also revealed that Kate and Margareta had disclosed to her the method of producing the raps by snapping their toes and using their knees and ankles. The revelation of this method incited further investigation into the sisters' abilities, with the Reverend C. Chauncey Burr writing in the New York Tribune that the sounds produced by the raps were so loud they could be heard in a large hall. That same year, investigators from the University at Buffalo, including Austin Flint, Charles E. Lee and C.B. Coventry, examined the raps produced by the sisters and concluded that they were produced by cracking their bone joints, such as toes, knees, ankles or hips. Through a control experiment, they discovered that the raps did not occur if the sisters were placed on a couch with cushions under their feet. These revelations plunged the spiritualist movement into disarray, with many believers questioning the authenticity of the Fox sisters' abilities. In 1853, Charles Grafton Page, a patent examiner and advocate for Washington, D.C., thoroughly investigated the Fox sisters. Employing his sharp eye for detecting fraudulent claims related to science, Page uncovered some of the deceptions employed by the Fox sisters during two sessions which he attended. In his book, Psychomancy, 1853, Page discovered that the rapping sounds came from underneath the girls' long dresses. When he questioned the possibility of spirits producing sounds from a distance, one girl climbed onto a wardrobe closet where her dress touched the wood and the sound transmitted into the wooden plank. However, she was unable to control this sound sufficiently to produce spirit communications. To replicate the rapping sound produced by the girls, Page invented contraptions that could be concealed under long clothing. He criticised the girls' methods of avoiding physical examination that would expose their fraud. 
the feminine security of these wrappers against the inspection of their actual quo modo, if by search warrant, stratagem, or vi et armis, the wrapping instrument of these fox girls had been exposed to the public, there would not have been one doubt about the nature and origin of the spiritual communications. In 1857, the Boston Courier offered a $500 prize to any medium who could demonstrate paranormal ability to their committee. The Fox sisters attempted this challenge, but were investigated by a committee that included magician John Wyman. The committee concluded that the wraps were produced by movements of bones and feet, and as a result the Fox sisters failed the challenge. A report by the Sabert Commission in 1887 stated, after investigating various mediums, including one of the Fox sisters, the phenomena could have easily been produced by fraudulent methods. The report noted that the raps were heard close to the medium and the sitter. Professor Furness had felt pulsations in her foot. Kate was one of the mediums examined by William Crookes, a prominent physicist between 1871 and 1874. Crookes concluded that the raps were genuine. However, he was described as gullible and the mediums he investigated were caught using trickery. In the year 1904, a false wall in the cellar was reported to have fallen down, revealing a grisly find according to a story published in the Boston Journal. It was the body of a peddler who had been murdered. But the authorities at the time did not open an investigation, as a doctor's examination of the bones found that they consisted of bits of animal bones and chicken bones, and concluded that it was all a practical joke. Several years later, a tin box purporting to belong to the peddler was discovered in the cellar along with the remains. But there is no mention of a box in earlier accounts of the discovery. Today, the bones and the box are on display in the Lilydale Museum. Skeptical researcher Joe Nichols studied the box and the primary source of the bones and concluded that they were part of a further hoax. The bones were, at least, in part those of animals. There is no evidence that the peddler even existed, and the alleged false wall was likely due to an expansion of the foundation, rather than a concealment of a secret grave. In 1871, Kate journeyed to England, funded by a wealthy New York banker, so as not to receive payment for her mediumship services. It was considered a missionary endeavour, as she only held seances for prominent persons who would serve as witnesses to her work. In 1872, Kate married H.D. Jenkin, a London barrister, legal scholar and an enthusiastic spiritualist. Tragically, Jenkin passed away in 1881, leaving Kate with two children. Through the years, the sisters, Kate and Margareta, have developed a serious drinking problem. By 1888, they became entangled in a feud with their sister Leah and other leading spiritualists. The spiritualists were concerned about Kate's alcoholism and how it was affecting her ability to care for her children. At the time, Margareta, contemplating a return to the Roman Catholic faith, became convinced that her psychic abilities were diabolical. In an effort to inflict maximum damage on Leah, the two sisters travelled to New York City, where a reporter offered them $1,500 to expose their methods and give him an exclusive on the story. Margareta appeared on stage at the New York Academy of Music on October the 21st, 1888, with Kate present. Before an audience of 2,000, Margareta demonstrated her ability to produce raps, audible throughout the theatre. Doctors from the audience came on stage to verify that the cracking of her toe joints was the source of the sound. Margareta recounted the tale of the origins of the enigmatic wrappings in a signed confession that was given to the press and published in the New York World on October the 21st, 1888. In this statement, she expounded on the events that occurred in Hydesville and elaborated on her career as a medium after leaving the homestead to embark on spiritualist travels with her elder sister, Mrs Underhill. The statement reveals that Margareta's sister, Katie, was the first to discover that certain noises could be produced with her knuckles and joints by swishing her fingers, and that the same effect could be achieved with her toes. 
Margareta and Katie then practiced making wraps with their feet, first with one foot and then with both, until they could do it easily when the room was dark. Margareta explained that the wrappings is simply the result of perfect control of the muscles in the leg below the knee, which govern the tendons of the foot and allow the action of the toes and ankle bones that are not commonly known. She further explained that such perfect control is only possible when the child is taken at an early age and carefully and continually taught to practice the muscles, which grow stiffer in later years. Thus, this is the simple explanation for the whole method of the knocks and raps. Margareta shared her insight on the common delusion that people feel the spirits touching them when they hear the rappings. In her words, it is a very common delusion, of course. That was pure imagination. Harry Houdini, the famous magician, also provided his insight on the topic. He explained that sound waves can be deflected, making it difficult to locate their source. He even shared a simple test conducted by Stuart Cumberland, where two coins were clicked over the head of a blindfolded person to demonstrate their inability to trace the sound or its source. Both Cain and Houdini were strong opponents of spiritualism, with Cain even denouncing it as an absolute falsehood and the most wicked blasphemy known in the world. Margareta recounted her confession in writing in November 1889, about a year after her exhibition, due to the pressure from the spiritualist movement and her own desperate financial circumstances. She attempted to return to spiritualist performances, but failed to attract the attention or paying clientele of the sister's earlier career. Kate passed away in her home located at 609 Columbus Avenue in New York City on July 3, 1892. Less than a year later, Margareta, deep in the throes of alcoholism, found herself living on charity as the sole tenant of an old tenement house at 456 West 56th Street. She was eventually taken in by spiritualist Mrs. Emily B. Ruggles whose home was located at 492 State Street in Brooklyn, where she eventually passed away on March 8, 1893. All three sisters are interred in Brooklyn, New York, Margareta and Catherine in Cypress Hill Cemetery, and Leah with the Fox family in Greenwood Cemetery. We appreciate your support and feedback. Our social media links and email address are easily accessible in our bio, and we welcome you to connect with us to share your thoughts, recommendations, or ideas for future episodes. Your input is crucial to our ongoing growth and ability to provide exceptional content for all listeners. Accessibility is of the utmost importance to us. All of our past episodes are available for free on all major platforms and our website. Additionally, if you enjoyed the music we have created for this series, you can listen to it in its entirety on Bandcamp, also for free. Next week we will be taking a deep dive into the mysteries surrounding the Summerton Man. This case has puzzled investigators for decades and remains one of the most perplexing unsolved mysteries of all time. We will be exploring in this two-part episode the many facets of this enigmatic case, delving into the intricate details and attempting to piece together the puzzle of the Summerton man's identity. We invite our listeners to join us on this journey as we unravel the mystery of the Summerton man. Our episode will be released next week, so be sure to stay tuned for more details. We are grateful for the time and attention you have given us, and we thank you for being part of our exciting journey of exploration. Your support is invaluable, and we look forward to continuing our voyage into the realm of the unexplained. Thanks for listening.
Horror. Paranormal. UFOs. Crime. Folklore. Mysteries. Cryptid. Horror. Horror. Paranormal. UFOs. Crime. Folklore. Mysteries. Cryptids. The Occultaria of Albion investigates and explores a world that many believe does not exist. A world of the uncanny, where man's most ancient fears are allowed to run freely. It is not to be found in some faraway mystical land. This world is beneath your feet, at the shopping centre, across the road, and around the corner from where you live. Discover the world of the Occultaria of Albion, paranormal publications and podcasts. Go to occultariaofalbion.co.uk to discover more.